0: The sermon is uh, Revelation chapter 16. We'll be from Revelation chapter 16 this morning. Uh, I don't have an Old Testament reading for you just because the New Testament reading is so long. And so we'll break that tradition uh, this morning. But Revelation chapter 16, if you would turn there. We'll begin in verse 1 and we'll read the whole chapter. Would you hear now God's holy word? Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels... Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire, They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed God, the God of heaven, for the pain of their sores. They did not repent of their deeds." The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath and every island fled away and no mountains were to be found and great hailstones about 100 pounds each fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. So far, the reading of God's holy word, and we do pray that the Lord would bless the preaching of it also and help us to apply it to our lives today. Uh, Whenever we have come to a new cycle of seven in the book of Revelation, it's been my custom to uh, first of all consider that cycle broadly in one sermon and then to move through it more methodically in in subsequent sermons. Uh, Remember that that was my approach with the letters to the seven churches. Uh, with the seven seals, with the seven trumpets, and I'd like to take the same approach with the seven bowls of God's wrath as they are described to us here in Revelation chapter 16. Uh, We will consider this passage in its entirety today, uh, making some general observations before moving through it more slowly, either in the week or weeks to come. I haven't decided yet. I usually have to get into the writing of the thing to decide if I could tackle it all in one week or not. Uh, But here we have general and broad observations concerning Revelation chapter 16. And there are four observations that I would like to make about this text today. First of all, I want to say and remind you that it would be an error to interpret this passage in a literal fashion. Have you ever heard that before in the sermon series? I hope you're not growing too tired of it. I, I just know how easy it is for us to slip back into literalism into hyperliteralism and to forget that we are in a symbolic book. And so I want to make this point. Again, I'm not going to try to prove it here, for I've already tried to do that in, in previous sermons long ago. I simply need to remind you that the book of Revelation, given its apocalyptic genre, is not meant to be interpreted uh, literally. Generally speaking, the book uses symbols to communicate truth to us. Uh, most of the Bible is to be interpreted literally. Uh, that is true of most of the Bible, and I think it is a great tragedy when people take passages of Scripture that are meant to be taken literally and interpret them symbolically or spiritually. And, and this uh, they do so that they might interpret the Scripture text not as the author intended, but as they would like to. You understand that this is a real danger and a real problem when people come to passages of Scriptures that are, of the Scripture that are meant to be taken literally, and they say, "No, we'll make it symbolic." Now they have the freedom to. Uh, twist that thing into whatever uh, they want it to be and we must resist this impulse with all that is in us for it is ultimately a distortion of God's word but with that said there are some passages of scripture that would be wrong to interpret literally for they are symbolic by nature and so to interpret the literal as symbolic or the symbolic as if it were literal is equally problematic are you tracking along with me here Uh, Both approaches will yield error. And so the student of the Bible must pay very careful attention to the type of literature that he or she is handling and then interpret it accordingly and with great consistency. Uh, The text that is before us today, remember, is apocalyptic literature and it is prophetic. And so it is only appropriate that we take the cues from the book of Revelation itself and consistently interpret this book in a symbolic fashion uh, when we come before the book of revelation we need to remember that though it is symbolic the events that are symbolized here in this passage will literally happen are you still with me uh, though it is symbolic the let the events that are symbolized here will literally happen God will indeed pour out his wrath upon the ungodly at the end of time. But that event is described to us in a symbolic way here in the book of Revelation. In other words, John was not shown video footage of the second coming of Christ and the outpouring of God's wrath ahead of time as if it is exactly as John saw it, as if it will happen as, exactly as John saw it here in this vision. No, instead John was shown a vision filled with symbols which reveal to us What will indeed happen on the last day? And so you are seeing, and I think you're convinced of this by now, that when interpreting symbolism, an extra step is required in the process of interpretation. Not only must we read the words of the author to understand what he is describing to us, but we must go a step further and ask, now what does that thing that the author has described to us represent? Uh, Remember that Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field, Matthew thirteen thirty one. The literalist thinks, if I wish to further the kingdom of God, I must learn how to farm. But the one who rightly divides the word of truth recognizes the symbolic nature of Jesus' words and adds another step to the process of interpretation and asks, what does the sowing of mustard seeds represent concerning God's kingdom in the world. Does God have a kingdom in the world? Yes, he does. And is he concerned that his kingdom be furthered in the world? Yes, he is concerned with that. Literally, he is very much concerned with that. But Jesus here in this Matthew 13 text, he is trying to teach us something about this literal kingdom, which does literally exist and which will literally advance using symbolism. He compares it to a mustard seed and farming. And the same thing is going on here throughout the book of Revelation. Truths concerning the end of time, concerning things that will literally happen, are being communicated to us using symbols. And so, no, I do not believe that on the last day, those ungodly who are alive upon the earth when Christ returns to judge will experience things exactly as they are stated here in Revelation chapter 16. You you understand We do not have video footage of the event ahead of time. It's not as if seven angels are literally going to come from heaven and crop dust the earth, pouring out literal bowls that contain literal wrath. Uh, That's not how it will happen. That would be a mistake to interpret the passage in that way. That would be to slip back into Literalism. Instead, we must understand that these angels that John saw in a heavenly vision do symbolize something of what will happen at the end of time. What will happen at the end of time, God and his Christ will return to judge. Uh, that is true. I do believe that the wrath of God will be poured out at the end of time and that the outpouring of God's wrath will be terrible and awesome and it will be perfectly just. The symbolism of Revelation chapter 16 communicates these truths very effectively to us. Secondly, it is important to recognize that the key to the symbolism of the bold judgments is found in the Old Testament. And two passages are primary. First of all, the ten plagues as described in Exodus chapter 7 and following. And then secondly, Leviticus chapter 26, we are familiar with the story of the 10 plagues, you're probably not as familiar with Leviticus chapter 26, but it is there that Israel, Old Covenant Israel, was threatened by God with with sevenfold punishment. Should she fail to keep the covenant that she did enter into with her God. That is the Mosaic covenant. A covenant of works that could be broken by her. And so those two passages really do stand in the background. Of everything that we are considering here in Revelation chapter 16. First of all the ten plagues. Exodus 7 and following. And also the threat of sevenfold punishment. Against old covenant Israel found in Leviticus chapter 26. Now remember that the bulls. Were first called plagues in Revelation 15, 1 through eight, and then also in fifteen, um, also in in sixteen one, uh, John said in fifteen one. Then I saw another angel, another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven seven plagues which are the last for with them the wrath of god is finished so there even in fifteen we we're being clued in that there's some connection between the plagues that were poured out upon the egyptians and what is about to happen here with the outpouring of these these judgments they are first of all called plagues and then also in sixteen one, 1 um, they're then called the seven bowls of the wrath of god so these bowls and the plagues are describing the same thing but the language should clue us in uh, to the connection with with uh, the Ezekiel with the Exodus 7 passage. Uh, notice that the seven bowls or plagues of Revelation 16 also correspond to the 10 plagues of Exodus 7 and following, following uh, thematically. Uh, just notice these uh, connections really quickly. I won't spend much time on them, but notice that the first bowl of Revelation 16 corresponds to the sixth plague of Exodus wherein sores and boils did inflict the ungodly so there is a connection there uh, between the first bowl and plagues numbers six plague number six in the Exodus event Uh, the second and third bowls also correspond to the first plague wherein the waters were turned to blood Uh, remember at the Exodus event it was the waters of the Nile River that were turned to blood uh, here in Revelation 16, it's, it's all the waters of the earth that are turned to blood. The fourth and fifth bulls correspond to the ninth plague, I, I think, in that the sun is a- affected. At the Exodus event, uh, the land was covered with complete darkness. Do you remember that? Uh, but here... Uh, In the fourth and fifth bowls, the sun is first of all not darkened, but it is intensified so that those who are living upon the earth are actually scorched by its heat. And then afterwards, the earth is plunged into uh, darkness. Uh, The sixth bowl corresponds to the second plague, I think, with the mention of frogs. Uh, Remember in the Exodus event, frogs did come up out of the Nile River and cover uh, the land, and here there are three frogs that proceed from uh, the dragon and the beast and the false prophet, and they go about to deceive the, the kings of, of the earth. And the seventh bull corresponds to the seventh plague, with the mention of hailstones falling from the sky. In the Exodus event, hailstones fell from the sky and destroyed the crops. Remember, here the hailstones are described as being a hundred pounds each. Falling from the sky. And so clearly, the plagues that were poured out upon the Egyptians in the Exodus event stand behind the symbolism of Revelation chapter 16. Uh, We have only considered these things very briefly, I know it, but the similarities and the differences are, are obvious when we just even think briefly about them. Now, Leviticus 26 is also a significant text. In verses 1 through 13 of Leviticus 26, Blessings are promised to old covenant Israel should they keep God's commandments. And in verses 14 through 39, judgments are promised to Israel should they decide to break the covenant of works that they did enter into with their redeemer. So there they are redeemed out of Egypt, brought into the wilderness and will possess the promised land. And God says to them, "You keep my law, you will thrive in the land. You break it and If you break it in an unrepentant way, uh, you will be vomited out of the land and and these curses will come upon you. The repeated threat is that they, if they disobey, uh, would be struck by God. God would strike them or discipline them and then the repeated refrain is sevenfold. And so that is the threat. These things will be poured out upon you sevenfold. And there is in this passage a a noticeable intensification of the threatening. Uh, So things get more and more harsh as the uh, passage progresses all the way until it culminates with these words from God. But if in spite of this, this is Leviticus 26, 27, but if in spite of this you will not listen to me but walk contrary to me, Then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. And you shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And I will destroy your high places, and cut down your incense altars, and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols. And my soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste, and I will make your sanctuaries desolate. And I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land. So that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations. And I will unsheathe the sword after you. And your land shall be a desolation. And your city shall be a waste. So do you hear the threat of judgment that God does bring. Even against Israel. Old covenant Israel. Should they break the covenant that they entered into with their God. He threatens them in a severe way. And their judgment will be sevenfold. And so clearly, both the plagues of the Exodus event and the sevenfold threats leveled against Israel in Leviticus 26 stand behind the outpouring of the seven plagues of Revelation 16. So here we have symbolism in Revelation 16. Well, what does it mean? Well, it's the Old Testament scriptures that help us to know what it means. Uh, The meaning is this, therefore... At the end of time, something like the Exodus event will happen again, but on a universal scale and with finality, God's people, that is all in Christ, Jew and Gentile alike, will be redeemed, and the wicked, that is all not in Christ, Jew and Gentile alike, will be judged Uh, These plagues or these sevenfold judgments will come not upon one people, but upon all who do not have Christ as Lord, who have taken upon themselves the mark of the beast, and not in a limited way, but fully and with finality. God's people will be redeemed, not from Egypt, but from this world, being rescued not from Pharaoh, but from the ancient serpent himself, being delivered not from earthly bondage, but from sin and death Ultimately, and so do you see how the Book of Revelation functions? It picks up images and themes from the Old Testament, but it alters them so that we might get the idea that something like that Exodus event is going to happen again, but with total finality on a universal scale. Something like what came upon Israel after she was disobedient to her God and was vomited out of the land and judged is going to happen again, but with 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 completeness and in a final sense. And so we must recognize the relationship between the bulls of Revelation 16 and the Old Testament passages, and we will do so more in coming sermons. For now, I simply want you to recognize, one, that there is clearly a connection. The key to understanding the symbolism of Revelation 16 is the Old Testament and not today's newspaper And two, that the book of Revelation is picking up these Old Testament themes having to do with judgment and is intensifying them and is universalizing them. That's what Revelation is doing. Here are the Old Testament instances or themes of judgment. It picks them up and and makes them even greater. They are intensified and universalized here in the book of Revelation. Now, if you've spent time reading your Old Testament, you've undoubtedly come across those passages Uh, that describe the judgment of God coming upon peoples and nations and their so-called gods. Uh, The Exodus event would be an example of this. The ten plagues were poured out upon the Egyptians and they were severe and the tenth was the most severe of them all. The ten plagues did culminate with the death of the firstborn throughout all of Egypt After that, Pharaoh's army was swallowed up in the sea. It was an act of deliverance for Israel, but it was an act of judgment upon the Egyptians and upon the gods of Egypt. That is what the Exodus event was. It was a a judgment event, but tied to it, it was also an act of redemption. For the people of God. Also in Leviticus 26, we read the threats that God did level against Israel at the beginning of the Mosaic covenant, but later on in the Old Testament, we have an account of God actually making those threats reality because of Israel's disobedience. God did indeed vomit Old Covenant Israel out of the land and did indeed use other nations to judge them and quite severely. You heard the severity in that Leviticus 26 passage. I read it intentionally so that it might jar you a little bit about the way that God threatened. ...the people that he had redeemed from Egypt... ...concerning the fact that they would be... ...assaulted from other nations... ...and they would eat their sons and daughters... ...and that their dead bodies would be heaped up... ...it's, it's language uh, that is jarring... ...it's language that is intense... ...and we also find in the Old Testament... ...many descriptions of the judgment of other nations too... ...God is indeed merciful and patient... ...amen... ...and he is loving and he is kind... ...but when the iniquity of a particular nation was complete... See Genesis 15, 16. Uh, God would judge them. For example, this happened to many nations at the time of the conquest when Israel did finally enter into the promised land with Joshua the lead. God commanded Israel to devote those particular peoples to utter destruction. And I know that many people are bothered by those passages of scripture where God commanded the utter annihilation of a particular people by Israel at the conquest. One thing that needs to be kept in mind is that for Israel this was an exception to the rules which typically governed their warfare. Uh, Typically their warfare was governed by rules other than these. But at the conquest when Israel did go in and uh, and overtake that land those nations were to be utterly destroyed and and annihilated every living thing. And people read those passages and they're troubled by uh, those passages. Um, one of the most common explanations that people give uh, to passages of scripture like this I think they feel as if they have to explain them away uh, is that the God of the Old Testament is somehow different from the God of the New. Have you ever heard this? And so they come to these difficult passages of scripture where the utter annihilation of of a people is commanded by God and they say well that's the way things used to be. That's how God used to be but now he is different. So the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. Or perhaps they have this view that uh, the way that people uh, conceived of God has changed. And so uh, they, they apply some evolutionary principle e- either to God himself or to religion, our conception of God. Uh, and these views are problematic on so many levels. I'll mention only two things. First of all, our God does not change but is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is eternal. He is not bound by time. He simply is. He is the unchanging one. The scriptures are so clear about this. And two, I wonder if those who make a distinction between the God of the Old Testament and the New have ever read either testaments. Uh, For God is loving and gracious. He is merciful and kind in both testaments. And in both testaments, he is also just and does promise to judge Uh, Wickedness. He has forever hated that which is evil and will in due time punish all iniquity. And so the point I am trying to make here, though I'm trying to make it very quickly and, and more time could be spent on all of these themes, the point that I am trying to make is that the New Testament does not throttle back one bit on the theme of wrath and judgment, but actually intensifies it. I suppose we could also say that God's love and grace is also intensified in the pages of the New Testament. Has God always been loving and gracious and merciful and kind? Yes, Uh, but we have seen the the, the most awesome manifestation of that. Where? In the cross of Christ. And so we know even more now of the love and mercy and and, and kindness of God. Uh, But the same is also true when it comes to his judgments for where was the wrath of God poured out and manifest before us in, most, in a most direct way except at that same cross of Christ. It's there that we see what it is that our sins uh, do deserve. And as we move on from that event, the crucifixion of Christ at where the wrath of God was poured out, the New Testament does often speak of judgment. And the outpouring of the wrath of God. And when it speaks of God's wrath and the final judgment, it refers back to those Old Testament instances of judgment and speaks of them as if they were merely a sampling or taste of the wrath that is to come. Do you remember what it was that God did to the Egyptians? Well, that sort of thing is going to happen again to all of the ungodly, but on a universal scale. Fully and finally the wrath of God will be poured out. Do you remember how God did judge even Old Covenant Israel for her disobedience sevenfold? Well, that is going to happen upon all who live upon the earth who do break God's eternal law. Jesus himself did say concerning the town that rejects the proclamation of the gospel that it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Do you hear how Jesus speaks here then? He says, do you remember how it was for Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, it will be more bearable for them than for those who reject the gospel in this town on that day, on the last day. And so those instances of judgment that we find in the Old Testament are to be viewed, therefore, but as a small foretaste of the judgment that is to come, a judgment universal, full, and final. And so to put it most bluntly, If you are one of those who, when you read of instances of judgment in the Old Testament, you think, I'm not fond of the God of the Old Testament, then I do doubt that you'll be fond of the God of the New Testament either, for he is the same. What God did to Sodom and Gomorrah, to Egypt, to the Amorites at the hands of Israel, and to Israel at the hands of other nations, will be done at the end of history by God himself, against all who have sinned against him who are not in Christ, these God and Christ will judge fully and finally at the end of time. And so when you read of the seven bowls of God's wrath poured out and when you see that the symbolism is rooted in the ten plagues and the exodus of n and the sevenfold punishments of Leviticus 26 only modified to be universal, full and final, I think this is the conclusion that we must come to. Those judgments of old were but a partial and restrained manifestation of the wrath of God to be poured out in full strength upon all ungodly at the end of time. Um, Does this bother you? That's a question that I'll ask at the end of this sermon. Does this bother you? uh, That God would judge sinners in this way? Some, having been bothered by it, do set out to, with all of their strength, try to alter the Scriptures. And my suggestion to you today, brothers and sisters, is though, that, that, though this may be jarring, though this might bother you, and, and though it is true that we should not rejoice at the thought of this, uh, we, as, as God's people, ought to be changed by the Scriptures and not seek to change them. Perhaps what is wrong, perhaps what is askew, is not the Scriptures and not God Himself, but our, our view of God in our view of ourselves. Perhaps uh, that's the thing that needs to change. Um, Thirdly, and briefly, I want you to notice that the bold judgments reveal something of the final judgment, particularly the outpouring of the the wrath of God upon the ungodly, alive on earth at the last day. I I mention this because we tend to speak of, of the final judgment or the return of Christ Or the last day in general terms. But we should remember that that day will be a very complex day. Uh, Here in the bold judgments. I believe we have a depiction of the wrath of God poured out upon the ungodly. Alive upon the earth on the last day. But we must also as we consider this depiction. Remember that that is not all that will happen on the last day. When When we consider all that the scriptures have to say about the time of the end we must conclude that when Christ returns, the dead in Christ will be raised and caught up with the Lord to meet him in the air. Then those alive will also be caught up who do know Christ. They too will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Those alive and not in Christ will have the wrath of God poured out upon them. And that, I think, is the particular thing that is being symbolized here in the bull judgments those alive upon the earth when the lord returns i think there are indicators in this text that they are very busy persecuting god's people I think that will be the, the setting or the scene or the situation at the end of time where those who do not know Christ, who are not followers of Christ, who are alive upon the earth on the last day, they are going to be preoccupied with persecuting God's people. Uh, and then the Lord will return and rescue his people, leading them into the promised land, if you will. And he will then pour out his judgments upon uh, the ungodly. That is the thing being symbolized here in the bold judgments and all not in Christ will then be raised to stand before God at the great white throne judgment. Also Satan and his demons will be judged. And we could also talk about the dissolution of the heavens and the earth and the ushering in of the new creation. Do you see that Revelation chapter 16 isn't telling us everything But it's giving us one particular vantage point of something that will happen on the last day, namely God's people being rescued and God's wrath being poured out upon the persecutors of God's people who are still alive upon the earth. The book of Revelation gives us a complex picture though when all is said and done so that we do have instances of of, uh, reference to to the rapture of Christians. Yes, uh, not a pre-tribulation rapture, but, but a rapture nonetheless where those alive upon the earth are caught up and the dead in Christ also are caught up. Um, But there will be a a final judgment that is different from this. The wrath of God will here be poured out upon those alive upon the earth on the last day, but there is also the great white throne judgment. And what is that except the time when those who uh, were not in Christ do stand before that throne and are judged fully and finally for all eternity, and that judgment will be complete. Um, That is what is revealed, though, here in the bold judgments, the outpouring of God's wrath upon those who are alive upon the earth on the last day fourthly and and finally notice the heavenly opinion concerning the judgments of God is that they are righteous they are just they are perfect after the pouring out of the third bowl John heard something and so here he has um, these visions shown to him he sees things angels proceeding from from God to pour out these bowls. But he hears some things also in Revelation chapter 16, and it's good for us to pay attention to what it was that John heard. He heard something after the pouring out of the third bowl, and here is what he heard. He heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Uh, That is the opinion of this angel who has authority over uh, the waters. This angel, when he speaks, he emphasizes the justice and holiness of God and also his eternality that he has always existed. Uh, God is just, he says. All of his judgments and even the final judgment are perfectly right. And isn't that the thing that people do complain about when they read those passages of scripture that depict God's judgments? Either the partial ones or the final one. They stand up and they complain and they say, that's not fair. It's not right that God would judge us in that way. How could God treat us like that? But the heavenly and angelic opinion concerning the final judgment is it is just right. It, it is perfect what, it, what you have done, God. All of his judgments, even the final judgment, are perfectly right. He is holy. He can do no wrong. He is the one who is and who was, he says. Isn't that interesting? Um, in Revelation 1, 4 and 8, and then also in Revelation 4, 8, God and Christ are called the one who was and is and is to come. And so there in those passages, God and Christ are are, are, are called eternal, basically. Uh, you, you are now, you have always been, and you will come in the future. Revelation 1, 4, 8, and then also 4, 8. Um, that is the title given to God and Christ. But notice that here in Revelation 16, the words, Is to come, is dropped. And why would that be? Well, it is because it's here in this passage that... Uh, The coming of of God and Christ are actually being described to us. So no longer is it true that they are to come before in this passage they have come and they have come uh, to judge. But according to this angel God's judgments are perfectly fitting. They are just right. The punishment does fit the crime for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve he says. And so here is why I do think that at the end of time there might be a period of intense persecution where God does come to rescue his people as they are surrounded there by the unbelieving. And those unbelieving persecutors are then judged by God in this way. After this John heard the altar speak. It's kind of an interesting phrase, isn't it? And I heard the altar speak. I think this must refer back to Revelation 6, 9. And the breaking of the fifth seal, where John saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice. They're back in Revelation 6 nine oh sovereign lord holy and true how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth it was the big question that was kind of left open-ended there way back in revelation chapter six there are the souls of those who had been slain for their testimony saying how long is this going to go on lord how patient are you going to be when are you going to avenge our blood that has been shed unjustly and now that question has been answered by the subsequent visions here in the book of Revelation and in particular in chapter 16 with the outpouring of the wrath of God that question has been answered the time has now come and so the altar then i think the souls of those who are under it uh, again speaks and and what does the altar say yes lord god the almighty true and just are your judgments again it is just right and so what do we have here in this text except We have the opinion of the elect angels and also the opinion of the redeemed given to us. And they both agree that the judgments of God are perfectly fitting, perfectly just, perfectly right in every way. And I do wonder, I've already asked this question. I couldn't help but ask it ahead of time, I guess. What do you think of these judgments as you consider them? I know that some scoff at the idea. There are many like that. Um, they scoff at it, they, they hear mention of, of God's judgment or the final judgment and they just laugh, they say, are you kidding me? What, what are you, one of these cave menish kind of people who still believe in these superstitious things that there's a God who's going to judge? They scoff at the idea of it uh, they are those that Peter spoke of when he warned that scoffers will come in the last days with scoff, scoffing following their own sinful desires they will say where is the promise of his coming ever since the fathers fell asleep all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation that's how they scoff They are you kidding me just the sun rises and the sun sets it's always been this way it's always going to be this way where is your God why has he not come yet uh, and this might be you uh, You might disregard the word of God and you might say these things will never happen. And I think that you do it in part to comfort your conscience so that you might continue in your sin. And I do think that you need to be warned not to disregard God's word. Do not ignore the the judgments of God that have already been poured out as warnings of the wrath to come. And so you read the pages of Holy Scripture. It is God's word. Do not ignore it. And what is communicated to us there in the Holy Scriptures, among other things, except that God has judged in the past and is even active in judgments even now. And what are those except a kind of warning shot, fired over the bow, if you will, trying to get your attention, saying those are just a foretaste of what is to come. Turn from your sins. Look to Christ and have your sins forgiven. Now, while some scoff, I think others recoil at the thought of the judgment of God. And I have in mind here those who, when they hear of instances of God's judgment, either past, present, or future, they say, that's not right, or, or that's not fair, or how could God do such a thing uh, to us? And it's not surprising when the unbelieving do this, but I have found that many who profess faith in Christ in our day also recoil at the thought of the judgment of God. They too have have a distaste for it and say, may it never be. And so they must do something with the scriptures that they claim to believe. They must find a way to disregard those passages which speak of judgment. And some, they just ignore the texts that mention God's wrath. They just act as if They're not there and they pass right over those texts that have to do with God's wrath, his judgment, his condemnation. I think these are the ones who love to quote John 3.16, for God... So loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What a beautiful proclamation that is. But in reading John 3.16 and in quoting it they neglect John 3.18 which says whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And so those who recoil at the thought of judgment do sometimes ignore large portions of scripture that reveal that our God is a just God. Not only is he gracious and merciful but he is just and he is holy and he has judged and he will judge at the end of time. Some attempt to explain these judgment passages of way, usually by applying some kind of evolutionary principle to the history of religion or to God himself. And their argument is basically that something has changed with God or with the conception of God so that we no longer think of God in those terms. And I certainly have encountered this argument before. But the Christian, the Christian must confess that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the one who was and is and is to come. And the Christian does also believe that God's word is indeed God's word. So that what it says is true. And we are therefore bound to believe not parts of it but all of it. And what do we find when we handle it with care? We, we find that God is indeed merciful and gracious and kind. Though he would have been right to judge all for their sin. He has provided a way for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And he is patient with sinners. He gives good gifts even to those who blaspheme his name. He causes it to rain upon the just and the unjust alike. But God is also holy and just. All sin must be punished. The punishment for sin was either poured out upon Christ on the cross or it will be poured out upon the sinner at the end of time. This is what God's word does reveal. So brothers and sisters, I'm not saying that we should rejoice at the thought of the judgment of the wicked. Ezekiel chapter 33 verse 11 actually reveals that God himself takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked and neither should we. The scriptures are not calling us to to celebrate the thought of, of the wicked coming under God's judgment It's not something that we should jump up and down about with excitement. It should, in a sense, grieve us and move us to pray for those who do not know Christ who are still in their sins. It should move us to share the gospel with them and to even weep tears for them. But neither should we scoff or recoil at the thought of the judgments of God. Our, our minds must be thoroughly renewed by the word of God so that when we think of him, we do see him as loving and kind but also as holy, righteous, and just. And when we think of man, we must also confess that we are, apart from Christ, very sinful and deserving of God's just condemnation. In short, we must agree with the angel and also with the altar who say, it is what they deserve. And yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. We should agree with them. And lastly, uh, though the thought of the wrath of God poured out on at Christ's return should stir us uh, to, to be ready. Uh, that is the last point that I wish to make uh, this morning. I want you to notice also the words of Christ in verse 15. It's kind of an interesting little um, uh, phenomena that we find here in, in the book of Revelation. Um, in most of your Bibles I think these words are probably in red. And we haven't seen any red words for quite a while in the book of Revelation. But Christ himself does interject and speak. In the middle of these bold judgments. The angel in charge of the water spoke. The altar spoke. But also Christ has something to say. In the middle of these judgments. Verse 15. Christ says. Behold I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Keeping his garments on. That he may not go about naked. And be seen exposed. And so, here is the thing that Revelation chapter 16 is trying to move us towards. We're to be ready. We're to repent and believe upon Christ for the forgiveness of sins, for there is no other way to stand before God righteous. Uh, We do not have a righteousness of our own. We must be clothed with Christ's righteousness, which is received by faith. And once we have believed upon him, we are to cling to him continually Until he returns or until he takes us home So that we be found ready and not asleep Let us pray Father we do thank you for Revelation chapter 16 And I think all of us um, When we do read it it, There is something within us that is troubled At the thought of your second coming And the outpouring of, of your wrath And I think it is right Lord I pray for all of us that we would have hearts That are tender and compassionate Lord Hearts that do want to see Uh, The the sinners that are around us, the the ungodly, the unbelieving, come to faith, Lord. May that never change. May our hearts always be soft in that regard. May we pray for uh, those who do not yet know you. May we share the gospel. May we plead with sinners to to repent, Lord. Uh, But at the same time, when we read these things, Lord, if our minds have been indeed transformed by your word, if we have a proper view of you and the Holy Scriptures, uh, we must also agree that it is right, that you are perfectly just, and holy, and that you will do right in the end. Lord, I pray for each of us here in this room that we would live our lives today and tomorrow and until you take us home or until you return with these truths in mind, may we live uh, with with your eternal kingdom ever in mind. Help us, Lord, we pray. Give us a heart of wisdom, we pray. Uh, Do renew us day by day by your word and by your spirit. It's in the name of Christ that we say these things and all of God's people say. Amen.